Hello, microbe friends. I'm Dr. Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to share this show with you. Have you ever thought about the trillions of invisible microscopic entities inhabiting your body right now? While much of the microbiome spotlight shines on bacteria, there is a hidden side to the story that many people overlook. In this podcast episode, we'll discuss the lesser known residents of our microbiome, viruses. These tiny but potent entities are fundamental players in our gut's ecosystem. And Michael Shamish, a microbiology researcher studying these viruses, is here to share with us all the profound roles they play in our gut and our overall health. After listening, you'll gain a newfound appreciation for these microscopic allies within you and how they impact your well-being. All right, here's Michael Shamish. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe podcast. Hi, Justine. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today because we're going to talk about a topic that we haven't covered that much on the podcast so far, um, which is viruses, more specifically bacteriophages, and the ones that live on our bodies. So <laughs> I'm excited to get into that. But first, can you tell us how did you get interested in microbiology and what was your path to becoming a researcher studying bacteriophages in the infant gut microbiome and specifically the virome? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess my, my interest for microbiology really began uh, back in high school, towards the end of high school, where we had a short section in our biology class about uh, bacteria and other kind of microbes. Um, and that, you know, kind of ignited some some interest in me. I was fascinated by how we're surrounded by, you know, these, these uh, millions and, and kind of very diverse groups of organisms that we can't even see, but that are so essential for um, daily life uh, in, in a variety of contexts. So uh, after high school, I continued to specialize in uh, microbiology in university um, for my undergrad and uh, uh, continued down that path, uh, pursuing kind of microbiology research, um, where I joined uh, the lab that I'm in now, the lab of Dr. Corinne Maurice at McGill University in uh, Montreal, Canada, where we um, look at bacteriophages, which are these viruses that uh, can only infect and kill um, bacteria, so they don't harm humans. Um, and we look at these phages in the context of the infant gut microbiome uh, to see what they're doing there and if we could kind of harness their power to maybe uh, reshape the microbiome in early life. Hmm. Well, that's really neat that you got interested in it back in biology <clears throat> and at the high school level. Um, I have chatted with some high school teachers and I know they're always looking for ways to engage their students and get them interested in biology. And I know for me, it was it was just something that 
I can't even say it was the teacher necessarily, but it just kind of stuck out to me. It was something of interest. But um, I'm curious, did you have a teacher that really influenced you or was it just the topic just struck your fancy in some way? I think it was more so just the topic um, that, that, like you said, struck my fancy that I was interested in uh, and some of the maybe like the short labs that we had associated with that. So whether it was looking at probably some dead bacterial cells on a microscope um, at the time um, or just kind of reading some of the course material to, to learn about, you know, where bacteria are, which is pretty much everywhere. And I found that quite fascinating. So I wanted to study that further. Well, uh, yeah, seeing bacteria under the microscope, whether they're alive or dead, is definitely something that is unforgettable, especially just the mm-hmm. first time you see anything under the microscope. And it's it's a, it opens up this whole new world, just like you said, um, just being aware that we're surrounded by organisms we can't see. <laughs> and I think that's an experience that – most people have this idea in their heads um, if they haven't studied microbiology that they are surrounded by all scary organisms. And right. so it's kind of neat to, to help people come to this realization that it's actually this wonderful world full of lots of different – there's a huge variety of organisms and mostly non-harmful. So I think – you know, it's just, it's always neat to, to have that realization to, to be able to learn that, you know, in high school. And then now you're studying that in a PhD program. So I think that's really neat. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about the gut virome, what it is and what role these viruses play in our bodies? Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, you may have heard of the gut microbiome, which uh, kind of is a, a broader term that encompasses all of the bacteria, but also fungi or viruses that live in our um, gastrointestinal tract, mostly in the colon or small intestine. Uh, and these microorganisms are really um, important and really necessary for a lot of uh, functions that, that keep us healthy, whether it's helping us to digest food or helping us to kind of train or have a healthy immune system, things like that. Um, so the gut virome is really focusing on the, the viral fraction of that broader microbial community in the gut that we all have. Um, and we all have a gut virome as well. It's, it's quite specific to each individual. That's what recent studies have shown, where even if I live in the same household as a sibling, or if I have a partner that I live with, um, our bacterial communities might be more similar, but our viral communities will still be quite uh, unique in the gut. So there's that unique individual fingerprint that we each have. Um, and these viruses are mostly uh, bacteriophages. So once again, they're these viruses that don't harm us necessarily, uh, but they, they do kind of target bacterial hosts that they live within the gut. Um, but there is a small fraction of uh, what we call eukaryotic or mammalian or human viruses as well, um, which uh, you know, depending on whether or not someone has a viral infection, there might be more or less of these uh, in the virome at, at any given time. Uh, but generally, most of the virome is made up of these bacteriophages. Um, and in terms of the role of these these viruses in the gut, 
Uh, well, I guess I could go on and on about this. Um, some of the stuff that we know and some of the stuff that we maybe don't know, but have some good evidence for uh, at this point in the field. Um, but it has been shown that since these phages do target bacteria, and we know that the bacteria are very important for human health, um, they could alter the metabolic outputs. So they could alter what the bacteria are doing in the gut uh, at any given time, whether it's by killing the bacteria or altering how the bacteria um, uh, kind of work or function at a metabolic or physiological level. Um, which doesn't necessarily uh, mean that it's a bad thing, but, um, or that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but uh, just means that, you know, they are uh, kind of interacting constantly with their bacterial hosts in the gut. Um, and we could use that to maybe our advantage by giving certain phages that target bad bacteria or pathogenic bacteria that we don't want there. Um, so that's one example of how we could use the, these phages to perhaps uh, a beneficial um, outcome. Hmm. That's so fascinating. And it's really interesting to think about that, you know, that most of these viruses in our bodies are not infecting us, they're infecting bacteria. <laughs> I yeah. think that's, that's kind of like a major point to consider so that it doesn't seem so scary because the idea might be a little bit surprising to think about viruses inhabiting our gut if, if you know, someone isn't really aware of that and has mostly thought about the gut bacteria. And mm -hmm. so it's weird to think about, you know, that there are viruses that are n infecting the bacteria that are in our gut. And so I guess in a way it's, it's surprising, but in a way it's, it's maybe a relief, hopefully, for some people. <laughs> but um, yeah. is there anything else that you want to say about that that maybe for someone who might be a little bit surprised to hear about that, like what can you tell to alleviate their concerns? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I guess it's, it's in a similar vein to how uh, maybe most of society has now heard of or at least come across some reference to bacteria living in our gut and that are good and beneficial. And now we even have probiotics that people could buy for different purposes at pharmacies or, or things like that, or even get through their yogurts. Um, so we've kind of become used to that. I think more and more we'll become used to um, as a society, hopefully that there are these good viruses as well that live in and on us. Um, and that would be you know, quite a bit challenging. Uh, that, that is definitely a challenge after the past two or three years of uh, COVID and, and what a reputation viruses have um, kind of garnered over the past few years. But uh, knowing that there are these good viruses or viruses that really don't affect us um, in any way directly um, is I think uh, an important fact to, to convey uh, to, to people. Mm -hmm. So is it, if someone were to alter their diet and then that ships the bacteria that are in their mm -hmm. gut, how, I guess, is it even known at this point what role phages are playing in that? Would that directly impact the phages or is it, could the phages be part of the interaction in between like the diet change and how that affects the bacteria, where maybe it affects the phage and then the bacteria. Is any of that really known at this point? 
It's a good question. I guess it's kind of like a chicken and an egg uh, mm-hmm. question. Um, I I don't know if it's you know definitively known at this point, but what I would hypothesize, and I think probably what um, is currently believed in the field is that, like you said, if someone were to change their diet uh, significantly for any reason, um, what would change first most likely are just the bacteria that are there because uh, you're, a person might be eating different nutrients now, more or less fiber, more or less um, uh, proteins and things like that. Um, so that would affect which bacteria can grow and how fast they grow. And then based on that change, the phage community will uh, change in turn um, because there might be new bacteria that are kind of taking over or kind of growing quite a bit in the community. So their phages can also now uh, piggyback on that and and grow quite a bit. Uh, Or conversely, there might be bacterial hosts that are um, kind of dying because maybe they just don't have their their nutrient source anymore from whatever the new diet is, or they're not doing as well. So their phages would kind of be washed away slowly. Um, So I think it's more of an indirect effect of diet Mm -hmm. on the gut virome, just by proxy of what how the bacterial community is changing during that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, and you mentioned probiotics, and there are lots of different probiotics out there, but is there any, like, phage version of a probiotic? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um, or is that kind of in the works at all? I mean, I don't even know if that's a good idea or not. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know for sure. I've seen some products uh, that contain phage and, and I'm not, you know, endorsing any one product. I'm just giving some examples of things I've seen. Um, I've seen acne creams that contain phages targeting the bacteria that is known to cause acne. Um, So I I don't know if that Mm. has been proven to work better or not than other creams or therapies, Mm -hmm. but it's something that exists. I've heard of uh, phage containing deodorants that exist as well. Um, once again, haven't looked extensively into those details. Uh, and in, um, in certain countries, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, there are pharmacies that just kind of dispense phage um, over the counter in these small ready-to-go uh, glass vials where if someone is having a gastro- gastrointestinal infection, um, some kind of maybe E. coli or salmonella, if they ate something that was bad, uh, there is this phage preparation that they could just go buy from the pharmacy and, and drink. And it is known to target like a variety of different E. coli or salmonella bugs um, that a person might have encountered if they ate something bad. Uh, and hopefully that, that could help them. Hmm. So what is like, what would that be considered? <clears throat> would that be um, considered a, a drug or um, a supplement, like when they prescribe that, how do they, <laughs> how do they um, categorize that? Yeah, I think it's a still a bit of a gray zone uh, in that sense. I know regulation of phage therapies um, or phage administration is very different between um, some Eastern European countries like Georgia and uh, some kind of Western or North American. Uh, countries, depending where we're talking about, um, like the U.S. or uh, Belgium or Canada. Um, So regulation and categorization of these therapies is very different. Um, I think in 
in Georgia, for example, uh, where I gave that example of just going to the pharmacy to buy a phage cocktail for a gastrointestinal infection, um, that's something that could be done even without a prescription, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, so it's very accessible. Whereas in uh, the US, for example, um, phage therapy is really given as more of a last resort. Uh, if all other therapies have failed, then a physician might be able to get access for a patient to phages uh, if they need it for a bacterial infection or something like that. Hmm. And then my other question about probiotics is if someone is buying a bacterial probiotic, <laughs> are there going to be phages in there or is there a phage removal process before... I don't know if that's something you would know, but I'm just kind of curious. It came to mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure on the preparation kind of process for probiotics um, that are commercially available. It's not something I've uh, studied, but uh, so, so there may or may not be kind of free-floating phages in there that would uh, be linked to their bacterial host that are in that, that same product. But what I can um, kind of put forward is uh, there are some phages that are just free-floating uh, which will kind of infect their bacterial hosts and then eventually probably kill that or lyse that cell is what we would say. Um, but there are other types of phages that can kind of go inside a bacterial cell but remain dormant inside of the bacterial host genome. And we call these uh, temperate phages or prophages once they're integrated. Um, and then they just kind of hang around inside the bacterial's DNA until some point they feel like they should be uh, induced uh, and then they're kind of released from the cell again. Um, so it is possible that even if there are no free floating phages in um, the probiotic that someone might be purchasing, uh, these bacteria might harbor one or more um, prophages uh, in their genomes. But it's not to say that that's a bad thing or a concerning mm -hmm. thing. It's just something that ecologically exists or can exist. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting to think about that. For sure. <laughs> you might be getting more bang for your buck. <laughs> yeah, two for one. I, I guess that is something that, you know, is worth looking into. Maybe some have already looked into to see, uh, you know, what is, are there any prophages or phages coming mm -hmm. along with these probiotics that we're, um, some people are <laughs> taking. So. Yeah. So your research focuses on childhood or early childhood and infancy. Um, mm -hmm. And that's such a crucial time for development. So how do bacteriophages influence the early stages of microbiome establishment? And what potential impacts might this have later in life? Um, so the, the gut microbiome uh, is a, like I mentioned, a community of, of microorganisms that develops really rapidly during the first two or three years of life, where um, an infant might be on formula, milk, or human breast milk uh, at the time of birth, and then eventually they'll transition to solid food um, at two or three years of age. So there's a lot of changes to the microbial communities during that uh, period. And same thing to the viral uh, side of things, the phages. Um, in terms of how phages uh, directly influence microbiome establishment. Um, this hasn't, to my knowledge, been directly shown yet in any uh, study, but um, what has been shown and put forward in a couple different uh, papers by different groups now is that um, early on in life, the phages really seem to be more active and seem to be more uh, what we would call lytic or virulent, meaning that 
they're often really predating and, and killing their bacterial hosts in the gut. Um, but then by two or three years of age, once the microbiome has kind of stabilized and reached even what we would call an adult-like composition, even though the child is only two or three years of age, um, the phage community seems to be a lot more uh, uh, stable, um, dominated more by these temperate or prophages, uh, so not as much turnover in terms of the phage community. Um, so that's something that we're looking to maybe explore uh, in my PhD project, or, or we are exploring actually in, in my PhD project, which is uh, if we can use phages early on um, in, my, um, in the development of the gut microbiota to, uh, while they're in this very active turnover state, this very virulent state, to reshape the bacterial community before it stabilizes at two or three years. Mm, that's so interesting to think about that there's a lot going on. It's, <clears throat> you know, when um, you, the, like a baby, is, there's a lot of changes in what is happening to their microbiome early on in the first two to three years. And a lot of times we think about just the bacteria portion of those changes and that they're picking up different bacteria and they're being exposed to different bacteria. But then to think about that there are viruses that could potentially be involved in shaping this whole change and that there's all this activity in the virus community too. So like the, like you said that <clears throat> the phages are more analytics or tend to be more analytic, meaning that they're more active and they're killing the bacteria. Um, so then that, I mean, in my mind, potentially means that they could be shaping what bacteria are in, like, end up in the gut microbiome in the adult mm -hmm. phase. So it'll be really interesting to see what is actually causing that activity and why certain ones are more active than others. It's, it's very fascinating, especially since they, they pick up these bacteria from their environment, from the breast milk. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's anything else that I'm missing there, but that if that's coming from an adult, those bacteria presumably would have been in their adult's phase. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And then when they got into the infant became more active or is it that in breast milk that they are more active already before they even enter the infant or is it, I mean, these are probably things that maybe just are not known, but it's just making me think of a lot of different questions. <laughs> so yeah, oh, do you have, what, what would you, you know, what do you have to say about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on there with uh, these questions because they're, they're definitely open questions that we still have in the field. Um, whether or not things like phages are more active or, or more virulent in milk versus, uh, you know, the gut environment or other um, environments. Um, but yeah, you're right. A lot of the, the microbial communities that children, that, that babies get at birth um, are vertically transmitted from usually uh, their birthing parent. Um, and that happens at birth. So there is a very strong selection event that occurs right after birth or right at birth in the infant's gut to select for bacteria that really kind of survive in that 
type of nutrient environment where it's milk or formula being fed and not solid food. Um, and studies have shown that uh, for, for the bacteria, but also for the, the phages, um, the communities that are found in infants more closely resemble that of their, uh, their own mother than other mothers, for example. Um, so there is a very clear vertical transmission that is occurring, but how the activity is changing uh, is still something I think that's being studied. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder too if um, if thinking about like an adult that maybe has some sort of issue, what would it be like if they had phage therapy and they, I don't know. I'm like thinking about this mm -hmm. idea of them being more active from, you know, with, within like the context of an infant and then how that would behave, those phages behave in an adult if they would respond to that adult environment or would they start to, you know, mix things up in the, the gut microbiome in the adult and then calm down quickly or I don't know. It's just very interesting to think about. Definitely. I think it, it all comes down to whether or not the bacterial host for the phage is there. So um, mm -hmm. that's one thing that's really, I think, cool and, and fascinating about phages is that they're very, very specific. So if you find one phage mm -hmm. and you isolate it in a lab, it might only target one very specific strain of bacteria. Whereas if we're comparing that to something like an antibiotic, which um, people are very familiar with in, in medicine and in society, uh, oftentimes they're very broad and they can kill like whole classes of bacteria, which we may or may not want depending on what, um, you know, where it's being used and how it's being used. Um, so if we were to take a phage from one individual and put it in another individual or something like that, um, we'd hopefully, uh, or we'd only see really, I think, um, changes if it its bacterial host that it was kind of, that it evolved on was uh, also in the new environment. Mm-hmm. And um, we've mentioned phage therapy a few times now. And so for anyone who wants to learn more about that, I had a whole episode on that and I'll link to it in the show notes. But um, is there anything else that you can comment on as far as the potential ap applications of phage therapy in early childhood? Um. I could think of a, a couple kind of examples I could give. Uh, I guess one would be the same as any other case of phage therapy, whether it's for like a skin infection or a uh, kind of um, uh, skin infection or lung infection or things like that. Uh, phage therapy can be used in, in all of these different contexts uh, as it's used now in, in adults or teens um, in these contexts. So that would also apply in children. Um, but maybe a more specific example to infants uh, or to early life is necrotizing enterocolitis, which is um, a gastrointestinal, uh, a very severe gastrointestinal illness that has a mortality rate, I think, of close to 50%, and that affects mostly premature infants or premature babies. Um, and this is primarily bacterial-driven, at least it's uh, it's been believed to be. Um, so if we could use phage therapy in, in that sense to kind of calm things down in the gastrointestinal tract and, and prevent this colitis from worsening and ultimately causing death. Um, that would be, I think, really important. 
so there is some work that's going on there and studies have shown uh, in in different animal models including uh, i think it was a piglet animal model um, that these kinds of phage therapies and fecal virome transplants could be used uh, to to rescue um, uh, animals from a severe necrotizing enterocolitis and, and hopefully allow them to recover. Well, that's exciting to know that it's a potential, potentially very helpful therapeutic intervention for children and for infants. So, you know, because that's a very scary thing to encounter an infection in your child. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that phage therapy like you said, it's very targeted, which is great because of the problem that we're having with antibiotic resistance and how most of them are broad spectrum. And so this is very targeted as a therapeutic. Um, So a really hot topic these days is the gut-brain connection. And um, so are there any insights from your research or others in the field that shed light on how bacteriophages might influence this connection? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm not too aware of any uh, literature that's shown a direct role of phages in the gut-brain axis. But um, as I mentioned, since phages, of course, target bacterial hosts, and they've been shown to alter metabolic outputs of bacteria. Uh, And we know that bacteria in the gut are very important for this gut-brain axis and influencing the way we feel and the way we could even think. Uh, I don't think I'd be too far off to to maybe hypothesize that phages do have some impact there and uh, or some role to play there. And um, depending on which bacteria are being targeted or being uh, killed by phages, there may be consequences um, on the gut-brain axis as well uh, in that sense. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what happens in the future with this, which I would imagine it's it's far off, but who knows, maybe not too far off. But at least right now, I think, you know, people are thinking in the probiotic realm, but I wonder mm-hmm. if there is an application for phage therapy there that may come about eventually yeah potentially i think once we have a better sense of uh, which will definitely take a few years at least um, a better Mm -hmm. sense of how exactly the the bacteria in our gut can influence the way we feel and the way we think with the through the gut brain axis we could potentially look into developing like you said phage therapies to um, perhaps target bacteria that that we know are maybe associated with depression or anxiety or uh, dementia or things like that, other mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that'll be, it may even be some sort of combination therapy where it would need to be probiotic plus phage therapy so that you're adding good stuff, removing some bad stuff. <laughs> yes. And and of course, other therapies as well that target, uh, I guess, the ner- the nervous system directly um, and that have been developed specifically for, for these conditions. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, as a side project, you developed a mobile application called One Petri and it helps scientists with a lab technique called plate counting, called a plate counting assay. So 
Can you tell us a little bit first about what the plate counting assay is for anyone who hasn't worked with phage before um, in the lab? And then also how you got interested in creating this app. For sure. Um, so as you mentioned, it, it is an app I developed for uh, to help with plaque assays. And um, plaque assay is uh, essentially a technique that's used to, to determine how many viruses we have um, in a sample, whether it's a phage or a human infecting virus we can just get a, a Petri dish or many small Petri dishes that are kind of linked together, depending on uh, how you, you kind of set things up in the lab um, and plate a lawn of uh, cells. So a nice even lawn of bacterial cells, let's say, and then add a phage sample to, um, to the plate over the whole lawn that we just made. Uh, and then um, based on knowing how much uh, or knowing how much volume you added of your phage uh, sample, you can reverse calculate the concentration of the phages in your sample based on how many plaques you see. Um, and I sent an image, hopefully that'll be included uh, on the art on the, the web page um, for this episode, yeah, but okay, great. Um, and it just shows an example of a plaque assay where you can see a nice lawn of bacteria and many, many little circles uh, spread throughout that lawn where each circle represents the infection of one phage that killed bacteria in that area. Um, so this type of assay generally involves counting all of the plaques on not just one plate, but usually many plates because you might have different dilutions or you might have replicate, uh, replicates of the same plate if you wanna have uh, more kind of uh, confidence in your results. So this of course takes a lot of time to do um, if you're doing that every day or several times a day. So this app was developed, uh, I developed it to kind of speed up the process um, where you could just take a picture of your plates and your plaque assay and it'll uh, automatically count for you these different plaques that are on the plate and give you a number within let's say three or four seconds on average. Um, so much faster than the human eye. Yeah. Uh, it's, there, there's the expense of, uh, or it's, it is at the expense of some accuracy, um, but depending what you're doing that, that uh, kind of, opportunity costs might be um, all right for you. Depends how precise you need to be. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really neat. So did you have a background in any sort of, um, you know, computer technology or how did you actually mm -hmm. get to, you know, the coding portion? How did you deal with that? I'm just curious. Yes. Um, I do have a bit of a background in just programming in general uh, in, in a couple different languages. Um, and over the years, I've kind of thought about and maybe dabbled a bit in making um, apps for, for iOS or for mobile phones and things like that. Uh, and I figured this could be a good use case where um, this is something that many phage researchers and virologists in general um, have to do, you know, usually on a daily or weekly basis. So if this could save time for these uh, researchers, that would be great. So uh, it was mostly like an evenings and weekends side project <laughs> um, kind of thing on the side of my uh, research in the lab. Um, but yeah, I was able to, to complete that uh, last year and get it out there for free for people to use. Um, and I've gotten great feedback, which is uh, really encouraging. So I'm happy that people are, are using it and enjoying it and that it's saving them time. Yeah. I think that's so cool. And 
and just very generous of you to to create that for the scientific community. And I'm sure it was, you know, rewarding in a way it helped you, but it's like it's helping other people too. You're able to share that publicly. So that's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah, um, and it was great to learn a lot as well during the process about like, yeah. uh, this was my first time using or making an app that involved like computer vision where it would look for specific things in images. So uh, that mm-hmm. was uh, very uh, interesting and um, mm-hmm. fun journey of, of learning as well. That's really cool. So do you have anything about your work or microbiology in general that you think many people misunderstand or that you'd like to clear up? Uh, I think it's something that maybe we already touched on several times throughout the podcast, but I'll, I'll mention again just because I, I do think it's really important. Um that not all microbes, whether it's bacteria, viruses, fungi, things like that, um, not all microbes are bad. And actually, it's really only a small, small fraction of all the microbes that exist in and on and around us that are um, pathogenic and that can cause some kind of disease. So, um, you know, pandemics don't help. They definitely give microbes, whether it's viruses or bacteria, a bad rep. Um, But they're also really important for our health and for uh, creating oxygen in our atmosphere and keeping our plants alive and thriving in, in, in the soils, uh, in the forests around us. So, um, I'd say that's maybe one big thing I just like to, to clear up and, and make sure that everyone, um, is aware of. Yeah. Not, <laughs> I feel like that's one of the biggest things that I am constantly harping on about, but I mm-hmm. appreciate you reiterating it in your own words because it is such an important point. And I'm hoping that at the high school level, the K through 12 level, really um, mm-hmm. early on in education, that now this information is making its way to the curriculum because it's it's so important and we've learned so much from studying the microbiome and understanding, you know, our own, the human microbiome, but then also just what's going on outside of our bodies in the environment. And hopefully more and more this information is, is you know, being conveyed in the classroom at an, you know, at an early stage. So I appreciate you um, explaining that. Um. So what have you learned overall from your work that has changed how you think about microbes in your daily life? That's a good question. Um, I think one thing that I've learned uh, and really been amazed by throughout my work is um, how ubiquitous and how kind of diverse bacteriophages are. Um, it's estimated that there are approximately, I think it's 10 to the power of 31 bacteriophages on just on our planet alone, um, which is more than I think the number of observable stars in the universe or something uh, hmm. kind of huge like that. Uh, it's a huge number, 10 times 10 times 10, yeah. 31 times. Um, yeah. So there's, you know, there's a phage for every bacteria, uh, or at least theoretically there is a phage for every bacteria and we just have to find it. Um and it's also incredibly easy to to just find phages for the bacteria that you are uh, studying or looking for, uh, whether it's 
through getting soil samples or getting wastewater samples and just kind of screening these. Um, phages are really everywhere and it's just a matter of going out to, to find them and you'll usually find them without much effort. Um, and they're also incredibly diverse. So if I were to find a phage against one bacteria and you were to look for a phage against the same bacteria, but you know, using soil samples from uh, your backyard instead of mine, um, chances are there'll be two totally different and unrelated bacteriophages. And we may have even <laughs> never seen them before in any database. So they, you're probably mm -hmm. discovering it for the first time as well, which is really, uh, really fun and really um, interesting. Mm. I think that's pretty amazing to think about that there's, there's so much out there that has yet to be discovered and that theoretically there's one phage for each bacteria. And it sounds like most likely there's more <laughs> than yeah. one per bacteria. Um, yeah. So I think that is, is pretty mind-blowing to really consider. For sure. Um, yeah. So um, now we're going to talk about something fun. Um, what at-home microbiology activity can you tell us about so we can experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? Yes. Um, so it is a bit hard to come up with activities involving phage just because they are already a hundred or a thousand times smaller than bacteria, which we already can't see with our naked eye. Um, but I had an idea and I, I think it's a good way to just get a sense of how phages look like and what their uh, anatomy quote unquote is, um, which involves uh, using some uh, clay, colored clay or Play-Doh or any kind of uh, thing like that, um, that you have that has three different colors and uh, at least three different colors and um, that you can easily mold and shape. Um, and it's essentially just making a kind of small model bacteriophage uh, and getting a sense of its anatomy. So you might wanna use one color of your clay to make a small uh, capsid or the head of our bacteriophage. And that's typically what would contain the um, nucleic acid or the, the genome of our phage, whether it's DNA or RNA. And then you'd use another color to make the, uh, the tail or the body of our phage, um, which is like a long kind of protrusion coming down from uh, the capsid. Uh, and another color to make um, these small uh, tail fibers at the end of the tail of our phage, uh, which are essentially what kind of scan the bacterial cell surface and look for a certain receptor, just like a lock and a key for the phage to eventually infect and inject its uh, material. So I'll try and get you a couple photos of that to include. Um, and uh, that way you could have some, some examples of uh, how to make a phage with, with clay or any kind of uh, material like that. I love that. And I think that's really great. It goes really well with what we've talked about today because we've discussed what they are and what they do, but we haven't really talked about what they look like. So I think mm -hmm. this will be really good to to put to kind of connect all of those pieces and um, yeah. you know in a hands-on way, which really will help anyone who yeah, wants to do this and kids to be able to really wrap their heads around it. For sure, and I. I think this is just, uh, you know, phages, like I mentioned, are incredibly diverse. Um, so this mm -hmm. is just one way that phages mm -hmm. may look. 
Uh, some of them don't have tails or have a much longer tail or shorter tail. Um, but of course, to make all the permutations would, would take a while. Um, but I think by using different colors and maybe mixing and matching colors, if you have access to, to several colors, you can just kind of create these different combinations and get a sense of the diversity because each one will look different, um, whether it's the size or the shape or the color. Um, so it's a good way to, to kind of model mm. phages that are in and around us. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point that there's a lot of diversity in their structure. So yes, um, that's good to know for sure. Um, so lastly, do you have any resources on this topic that you would recommend so listeners can go deeper on this topic? Yes, I have um, a couple that I wrote down here. Uh, two are books, and one is actually a YouTube um, video. Um, so there's the book, uh, The Good Virus, published, or the author is Tom Ireland. Um, and this book was just published, I think, this month or last month. Uh, oh, wow. It's I'm partway through it myself now, but it's really fascinating. And it goes over, um, you know, the history of bacteriophage and its applications uh, going as far back as the 1800s when it's been kind of theorized that that was the first instance where people were started, uh, starting to kind of learn or, or figure that there's something smaller than bacteria that we can't see that is having an active role. Um, so that I would highly recommend. Uh, there's also The Perfect Predator by Stephanie Strathdee. Dr. Stephanie Strathty, um, and uh, this book goes over her journey and her husband's journey uh, on um, obtaining phage therapy for uh, the systemic um, and very strong uh, bacterial infection that her husband had. Um, and he has thankfully fully recovered from that now thanks to phage, uh, phages that have been obtained from really a worldwide or a global um, scientific community. So it's an incredible story to read. Mm. Um, and I'd recommend that. Um, and finally, there's the YouTube video um, all about phages on the YouTube channel, Chris Gazette. Um, and they make really great um, scientific videos for, for all audiences uh, and great animation as well. So I could uh, send you that link to include in the show notes. That's perfect. Well, those are great, and I'm excited to know about the good virus. <laughs> I did not know that that just came out. That's really cool. And um, The Perfect Predator is an incredible story. Yeah. I loved that book so much. Um, so, yeah, I definitely highly recommend that one as well. I'm excited to to read The Good Virus and add that one to my list. So, and, um, also we'll link to the YouTube video. So that's great. Um, where can everyone find, follow and connect with you? Yes. So I'm active on Twitter. Uh, although I think now it's changed to X, but same <laughs> idea. Um, and my, my handle there is at Michael Viriday. So I can uh, send that to you. Uh, otherwise, um, I, yeah, I guess that, that is it. I'm really just active on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And I'll also link to your website and that gives some great information about your research as well as the app that you developed, One Petri. So mm -hmm. um, thank you, Michael. This has been so interesting and just a really great introduction to bacteriophages and the virome and helping us understand that the microbiome is a whole lot more than just bacteria. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story as well as your research. 
Thank you so much, Justine, for uh, for the opportunity. It's been great to to chat a bit about phage and the gut virome in early life. And um, yeah, looking forward to uh, to people doing their phage activities at home. <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Microbe Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to help others who love microbes to find the podcast, then please leave a rating and a review for the show. And tell a friend. To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. If you love Joyful Microbe and would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a virtual tip through coffee. The link is in the show notes and on joyfulmicrobe.com at the bottom of the page. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time.